Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, a Drunken Dows Roundtable, as Michael Brooks, host of The Michael Brooks Show, as well as co-host of The Majority Report, along with Hunter Matz from the Mixed Mental Arts Podcast, joins us for a wide-ranging discussion, including We Can Disagree With Good People, the challenge of being raised by hippie wolves. Before saving the world, fix your local area, searching for purple, and don't be ashamed to grab that dictionary and look up words you don't know. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dallas Podcast begins now. On a disco haze. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 129 of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Once again, Daniele Bellelli and I join you from cyberspace. Here we go. Today is going to be not even interview time because it's more roundtable time. So there's going to be four of us chatting about life, the universe, and everything else. I ended up being like Malcolm X and getting my dictionary out a lot. Did you? Yeah. Aardvark. Aardvark. The famous first word in the dictionary. Before we forget, one quick thing. We will not be having an episode in two weeks as we usually do. We'll be having an episode in a month. So just FYI, keep that in mind. Don't cry for us. We will be back. Just not in two weeks. It shall be in four weeks. So You can send me an email if you're lonely. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Rich will read all your emails and we'll uh, reply and uh, shed a tear for you. Uh, having said all that, let's give a quick thank you to our good sponsors. So, thank you to Onnate, Datsusara and Shore Design. You guys know the drill. Links are in the episode notes. They, by now, you should know every product on their catalog. You I think. I must say, yesterday, first day of my semester in school, I, was, um, I started teaching again at Santa Monica College. I was in a funk. My brain was foggy. Alpha Brain came to the rescue. I really like the powder one. That one is working for me. So I'm, I'm a fan of that. Were there handshakes and red hot chili peppers as always? Or is the song yeah, changed? Yeah. So, no, of course. It was still a scar tissue for the first day and uh, all the good stuff. So, so that was fun. Um, yeah, and actually, you know, as much as I, I hate driving to the teach, I hate the going to school, but once I'm in the classroom, I kind of like it. I like being with the, the students are cool. Students. Well, Santa Monica is lovely too. So. Yeah, yeah. It's, n- it's not a bad gig for sure. So that's just, speaking of, I walk in with my Datsusara computer bag, of, of course, course. you did. And wearing a short design t-shirt as always. So as we always say, these are, these are things that we actually do use. Uh, speaking of shout outs, another couple of quick things I want to say. I said it before, I'll keep saying it again. Thank you to these guys from nevertapgear.com. Um, they sent us these awesome knee braces that I use all the time when rolling in jiu-jitsu. So if you, if you train, 
if you train jujitsu specifically, but really if you're training anything, it's not a bad idea to provide some support for your knees. So especially if you're old like you. Hey, screw you. Um, <laughs> also, speaking of fighting, a friend of mine opened a martial arts gym in LA. There's a link in the episode notes, and they give you a discount if you mention the Drunken Taoist when you enroll. Uh, last of the shout outs I want to mention this guy sponsored History on Fire for four episodes so it seemed like a nice thing to do just to say thank you also in this context bonus thank you yes bonus thank you to Flaviar these guys are cool they put together these um, basically what members get they send you these uh, tasting box of different kind of whiskey bourbon different things like that value spirits uh, that way you get to try them and then if you like it, then you can order the full-size bottle. Um, they have like a digital home bar. They have, you know, all sorts of pretty cool things. But um, I, I'm probably going to forget to put the link in the episode notes. Uh, so just listen in case you're interested. Check them out. They are spelled, Flavia is spelled F-L-A-V-I-A-R. Again, that's F-L-A-V-I-A-R.com forward slash exclusive. Because they kind of have a usually a waiting list, but they kind of allowed History on Fire people to jump in through a back way. So That's check how out. special you are. So tap, pat yourself on the back. Yes. And know feel, that you're so exclusive. Feel very special. So flaviar.com forward slash exclusive. I dig these guys. Check them out. Having said all this, I would say we can jump into the episode, can't we? Here we go. Since we are doing something a little different today, we're doing a double podcast. This will be released both on the Drunken Taoist feed and on the Mixed Mental Art feeds. So as a result of that, um, some listener may be familiar with some of us, less with others, vice versa. Why don't we do a quick round of self-introductions so everybody knows who all the voices in your head at this moment are. Well, maybe not all the voices in your head, but some of the voices in <laughs> yeah, your head some will never have a name. <laughs> some will remain <laughs> nameless forever, but, or they have scary names. But, you know, these are <laughs> the ones for the next hour, some will be... Um, Michael Brooks. I'm the host of Michael Brooks Show, co-host of the Majority Report, and I'm out here from Brooklyn. Check it's you good out. To be with you guys in uh, crazy LA or LA is what the Rastas call it. Check <laughs> you yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, my name's Hunter Motts. Uh, I'm uh, one of the co-hosts and member of the mixed mental arts community, and uh, I'm here all the way from uh, the other side of LA, mm. <laughs> which is, takes about as long as coming yeah, from New York. The same yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't. I cannot. I can't. I can't do the traffic here. It's. A, it's. A, I hate when cliches are totally true. Yeah. <laughs> that sucks. Well, you listen to a lot of podcasts then. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm here to help everybody. It definitely gives you time for it. Hi, I'm Retrievers. I'm the Drunken Taoist. And my pal Daniel Bo- Daniele Bolelli across from me here. Um, with the manly muscles absolutely and, um, yeah uh, Drunken Taoist uh, uh, History on Fire podcast few books I don't know something else I'm sure I do whatever that well, sounds I, perfect I actually wanted to I've been reading one of your books 
um, namely create your own religion. Uh -huh. And I think that would be a really interesting lens through which to have this conversation because it's a lot of what Michael and I were talking about in the car. Um, because one of the things that I really appreciated that you have in there is that everybody creates their own religion. It's just you're being honest about sure. it. Sure. So, uh, you know, in practice, you know, if you look at everybody around this table, we've all sort of cobbled together a worldview and a set of tools for making sense of the world that is picked up from books we've read, experiences yeah. we've had. Evangelicals whatever. we've fucked with. <laughs> <laughs> Girls yeah. whose religions we pretended to embrace so we yeah. could have sex with them. That yeah. That's actually right. has that's occurred. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that actually has occurred. <laughs> well, well, strangely enough, there is this one woman, you know, and through the horrors of Facebook, when you can reach out to somebody 27 years later, literally is trapped within her own super Christy religion. Oh, that wow. there's these bubbles of women that are afraid to say, hey, gay people aren't that bad, because they will be ostracized and removed from their own church. But let me and say And these this. little communities, they're so afraid... To be alone, they won't even stand up for themselves. That's terrible and sad. Yes. On the other hand, until you've been with a girl that's like into Jesus, but not like <laughs> that into Jesus, you, you don't know what a real good time is. Well, wow. then she just like, she only pulls yeah, the Jesus card right, when she yeah. really needs it at that point. <laughs> but why do you think that is? Why is it that girls who are into Jesus, but not really Because you feel like you're corrupting Jesus? them, man. Don't, ask me, to, don't ask me to elaborate on a joke. Oh, no, <laughs> oh, come on. No, there's, uh, there, I mean, there's, there's some psychological truth there. So what do you think is underneath that? You know, I actually really don't. I don't really know, to be honest. I don't have a I don't have a strong feeling about it one way or another on my end. And I've dated, you know, uh, women who I guess are pretty secular like me. And I've dated uh, women that have uh, religious beliefs that I definitely don't have. And what's actually interesting is that some I in some cases I felt like it, superficially it might seem like they're much more split. Because, and I and I have had some kind of funny like. You know, hey, are you really you're gonna go to you know church on Saturday? Well, at the club doing all this stuff, and like, oh yeah, definitely, I'm gonna you know clean get you reset get my clock yeah. on on a Saturday or Sunday. But <laughs> I, I, on the other hand, I actually have, I guess what I'm saying is that people who maybe rhetorically, and this definitely gets to what we're talking about, and their ideas seem more coherent and less split. They can be just as messed up about sex and intimacy and anything else, and it just kind of shows up in different ways. Yeah. So I, you know, so I don't. I actually never really experienced like that. I mean, you know, everybody's super messed up in their own ways, but I never found that to be particularly different. Actually. Yeah. I mean, it's a good joke, but not. But it's really. not actually grounded in truth. Yeah, but you know, humor supersedes. <laughs> all. Come on, man! I'm trying to trying to make some people laugh on a podcast, Hunter. But the thing that you hit up earlier, which I think is so important, right, is is that it is that tension between belonging and principle, right? And like so much of why people go along with any unhealthy group, whatever the unhealthy group is, because if we were to speak up, we would be rejected by the group. Totally. I mean, that's one of the things. Is like one of it's the same mechanism why people join gangs. It's the same mechanism that why people join churches. It's the same mechanism why people join anything. It's like there's an ideology there. There's a way we're going to dress. There's the way we are going to be. It gives you an identity. Yeah. And why, I mean, on the surface, it'd be like, why the fuck would you want a prepackaged identity rather than make up your own thing and be who you want to be? That seems stupid, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there are lots of advantages. You know, mm -hmm. it, uh, you don't have to think so damn hard about life. 
you don't have to, you know, if you have 10,000 insecurities as most human beings do have, you don't need to struggle with them that much because you have the prepackaged answers that the group will give you. You know exactly what to say in every circumstance. And on top of it, you have other people who will pat you on the back who say, we are all in it together. We are on the right path. Feels good. It's reassuring, mm. you know, life is scary enough as it is. Um, it's there's enough uncertainty in just about everything around us. So stuff that make you feel secure. Now, never mind that that security is complete bullshit because it's artificial right. and made up. But it's kind of like why people, why generally speaking, now people do lots of drugs and drink at every strata of society, right? Rich, poor, whatever. But why do you tend to find some serious heavy use the poorer, the more messed up the community is? Because it gives you a little bit of empowerment. You know, for that moment when you're really drunk, you feel good about life. You feel you can sing better than you can. You can you look better than you really do. You feel like, now it's not real empowerment, but when in your day-to-day -day life you have zero empowerment anyway, fake empowerment beats no empowerment any day. You know, so, Carl Hart, who studies addiction at Columbia, yeah. right? He actually, he, the point he made that I liked, it was very provocative the way he put it, he actually said in certain circumstances, first of all, that we have to think of addiction as a socially caused thing and economically caused thing much more than a kind of neurological or personal, mm -hmm. you know, sort of morality question. But he said, there are people in circumstances where, you know, getting a high is totally rational. Sure. You know, if you're in a completely devastated experience, it's a absolutely rational evolutionary mechanism. Yep. And so I think that, yeah, that 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 type of frame. But it's so interesting with all these the, the way we frame all these conversations, because I always see the tendency, I think partially just because we're in the United States, it always migrates to like this personal individual decision, personal individual. And the reality is, I mean, obviously, we're a fusion of social, cultural, individual, sure. bio-constructed. We are all of these things simultaneously. But we are so fundamentally out of balance in terms of how we view uh, contextual relationships, particularly in this country, and this savagery we have to blame people who have been really, you know, over-determined, um, you know, in terms of other variables and it's it's interesting because you know that's that's actually true across a lot of spectrums including you know people who are obviously in terms of poverty and other you know the most overtly oppressed uh by by where we're at well there's the conception of the individual right which is such a core part of the american culture but again that's a fiction that you've created Right. And then the question is, how well does that fiction map onto reality? And it captures some features of reality, but it leaves a whole lot out. Do you know the, um, there's in the Geography of Thought, Richard Nisbet's book, right, mm -hmm. where he's studying Eastern and Western mindsets and how they differ. One of the big things was that in the, I think it was in the 90s, there was this period where you had all those postal workers going postal. And then at the same time, there were a bunch of Chinese graduate students who went nuts and like killed people in their labs, right? And he took these reports and uh, basically, you know, you show these stories in China and you show these stories in America and how do the two cultures make sense of them? Mm. And the Americans look at these things and they're like, these are bad people. 
right? Like, right. you know, and they read into and they from that they construct a whole narrative. The Chinese read this thing of like, oh, this person was lonely. They didn't have the support network. They didn't have people they could talk to. So it's much more contextual. Right. And, you know, these narratives obviously make sense and drive well within these cultures. But in practice, I mean, you know, the, the great one is the... Um, uh, who's the guy they always in full metal jacket when you know the drill sergeant is going through private joker well he's going through you remember he's like uh lee harvey oswald you know and he says do you know what lee harvey oswald and charles whitman or what whitmore or whatever it was had in common they were both u.s marines right <laughs> and you know the point was is that again like take away the context of what they were doing this was from a pure marksmanship standpoint like an impressive achievement right but <laughs> right. i think uh whitman or whitmore i can't remember the guy's yeah. name was but you know it turned out that he had a brain tumor right and so suddenly when you understand that this guy who went nuts was talking to everybody about how his thinking was changing and he didn't understand why, you know, went nuts, shot a bunch of people from a tower, and then you're like, oh, he had a brain tumor. That context totally changes that set of choices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Americans, because they have this individualistic conception, constantly strip away context. And therefore, all you're left with is the fundamental attribution error of, oh, you're a bad person. Right. And there is something, as usual to me, it's always both, mm -hmm. you know, it's that kind of thing that whenever you hear people who are emphasizing the individual as mm -hmm. the one and only thing, it's like, sure, I get it, there's something <laughs> to that, but bring it back, there is also such a thing as context. Mm -hmm. Then there are people who are, everything is context, mm -hmm. nothing but, you know, you, there is no individuality, everybody's a product of their circumstances, and so there is really no individual responsibility whatsoever. Yep. And as usual, that game is a dance. Mm -hmm. It's like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Both true in some cases, one more than the other. In some cases, the other one is bigger, but it's never, a, you know, in good yin-yang fashion, it's never 100 and zero. It can be 99 and one, but, and it's somewhere along that scale, right? It's somewhere a mix of the two. I tend to distrust the answers that tend to eliminate one of the variables, you know, where it's just, there's only one explanation and that's it, regardless of which one the explanation is. Do you want to hear something that's 100% true? Do with tell. absolutely no ambiguity <laughs> Do in the gray zone? Okay. Uh, no, I, I think that that is true, actually, but I think that there is, there's, of course, there's always a fusion. But the problem, I think, in the United States and, this, and elsewhere under our certain sort of current really macroeconomic policies basically is that i think that it, it's it depends what area we're talking about so when you look at a lot of like uh, right-wing stuff the most charitable thing that i could say like something like like libertarianism and i know this will offend some people and that's fine you could tweet at me i probably won't notice because i've got other <laughs> things going on but it's uh it's 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 totally fantasy. It's like Scientology politics and economics. It's not real for actually doing actual politics. And it's certainly not going to achieve any type of human flourishing. But those same ideas, when they're maybe individually applied, they might be potentially super helpful. So the point I'm making is that 
you know, a lot of right wing politics is taking like the self help section and putting it in the econ and politics section. Mm -hmm. And that's not <clears throat> kosher, like in the actual proper use of that term. It's a mixing. So I think that, of course, it's individual and social, but we can't, we have to really think of like, you know, I remember one uh, Buddhist uh, friend I had once. He was like, you know, politically, I'm a socialist. Emotionally, I'm a Republican. And I love that because he was saying, like, you know, as far as this project of the broader human species, these things, you know, we need universal health care. We mm -hmm. need to dismantle the prison industrial. I mean, all these things, these are not, we can debate about it, how and so on. But if you can't accept those starting lines, we're not aligned. And I'm totally okay with that. And then in terms of how we're dealing with each other, you know, interpersonally, um, and your sense of your map of your own life as a person, well, then of course you should be adopting and looking perspectives that empower you as much as possible. And I think that there's no contradiction. We just have to look at what context we're, we're moving in. But to that end, we have to remember that what we're dealing in is fictions and right. that we are dealing with stories and we are dealing with religions. And right. when we had, you know, thank you again for introducing us to Kate Rayworth. But what was great about that converse, conversation was is that we were talking, you know, Brian and I had, you know, really been raised with the University of Chicago and Milton Friedman and all of that. And then, uh, you know, Kate Rayworth comes from an entirely different background. And she said, it's so great to talk to people of a different economic religion and be able to have a productive conversation. Mm. And the point is, is that, you know, these are economic religions. And I think your point is well taken about like libertarianism. Some of it, especially like the anarcho-capitalist stuff, should not be taken in terms of um, in terms of its ability to be practically implied in the real world and deliver real benefits, it's a form of self-medication. Yes. And it's right. a form right. of self-medication for people who have a very specific trauma uh, or a very specific set of hang-ups. Late, late virginity. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Well, I mean... Mom! If you, that type of stuff? If you look, no, if you look at like the new atheist, right? Mom. Like... The recurring pattern for all of those people is it's ex-Mormon atheist, ex-Muslim atheist, mm -hmm. ex-whatever, right? So they had these more hyphens, good. more hyphens. <laughs> um, but they, you know, they they have had a particular traumatic experience, sure. and they may have had like horrible <clears throat> things happen to them, yeah. like sexual abuse or sure. whatever. And then they've found a narrative that allows them to believe that there's a way that that can never happen again, which is that we're just going to get rid of religion, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. In the same way, and if you talk to the ANCAPers, as I've spent plenty of time talking to them, you know, like Michael Malice, who I adore and love dearly, but he grew up in Russia, in Soviet Russia, right? Like he right. had that experience. And so he has the real clarity that like, when the state gets out of control, fucked up shit happens. Sure. So that makes sense to what's Michael. What's the difference between him and people? Because contrary to some people's beliefs, in spite of my aggressive socialism, I'm not a fan of the Soviet Union. <laughs> what is the distinction between him and people like in the Solidarity Movement, as an example, or even someone like Václav Havel, who made a lot of mistakes, but never, in fact, his politics migrated basically to kind of sort of green, quasi-hippie-ish yeah. EU superstructure politics. So there were a lot of people, and that could be applied across the board. I know people who grew up fundamentalist, and they said, yeah, I read a Sam Harris book when I was 18. That was kind of helpful. And now, like, I'm an adult, and I yeah. read other things, and I'm not sort of one-dimensionally obsessed with freaking about, about other people's religion. They had the cognitive, emotional flexibility to move. So what's the distinction there? 
Well, I think part of it is is that then it comes down to what are you rewarded for, mm. right? So, mm. you know, like someone like uh, our buddy Derek Zoolander or Hysterical Man Speaking Calmly, whatever you want to refer to him as. I call him Hysterical Man. A hysterical Man Speaks Calmly. That's yeah. Sam Harris's podcast and my show. Yeah. That's when we but, impersonate him. But, you know, you, I actually, there was a, um, I had a, an interesting conversation on the Mixed Mental Arts Facebook group with this guy, Michael Murphy. And, you know, part of what Michael said is, is that, and I think it actually may have been Sam Sater who said this, mm -hmm. you start a podcast and you start doing a thing and yes. then you're getting feedback from the community and they're saying, oh, that thing is good. And you're like, oh, that thing is good. So I'm going to go more down that way. And you go down more that sure. way as, and you start to get radicalized until that's your shtick. Right. And it's the same thing happens yeah. with academia, right? Happens with everything. Yeah. It's like, even if you... If you want to write a book, well, mm -hmm. nobody reads anymore, but back in the day, you know, <laughs> a while back. Books, man. <laughs> yeah, I really do. That's impressive. Yeah, clearly Hunter yeah. does. But, you know, yeah. the thing is, if you write a book that's not neatly defined in one genre, bookstores don't know what to do with you. Mm -hmm. It's like, which part of the bookstore do we put you in? Mm -hmm. You know, is it religion? Is it philosophy? Is it real life experience? Is it, give us the heading. You need to fit somewhere. And then within the heading, you need to fit within a subcategory mm -hmm. of like, you are that particular aspect. And it's the same thing as what you're saying in academia is the process of ultra specialization. So rather than, let's say you're into one topic, I don't know, I do history, right? So it's like, okay, history, I don't give a fuck about history for history's sake. I give a fuck about history and how it can inform life of how mm -hmm. it can make life better. Ultimately, I don't care about anything mm -hmm. other than in the measure in which it can make life better, period. So that's a very big, broad definition. Mm -hmm. But it's like, well, no, we're not doing all the things that can make life better. You pick one field. Now, within that one field, you need to pick one particular subdiscipline. Within that subdiscipline, you need to find your own particular niche. And before you know it, you're writing books about what happened on that street corner in Paris <laughs> between 5 p.m. and 5.20 in 1983, you know, and you're like, this is bullshit. There is no relevance whatsoever to life at that point. But I see so much, like, I always just, you know, my bias is the economics of it, an era and a time where, okay, with regards to academia, I mean, it's kind of funny because there's all this sort of freak out that supposedly there are these all-powerful, like, you know, Oh, gender get, studies professors that will destroy your life or whatever. <laughs> Meanwhile, in reality, like, yeah. you know, if you get a PhD, you can almost certainly not going to get a job. Yeah. I mean, the economics are actually horrible. And mostly what's incentivized for people to do academic work in are things that will benefit R&D and research and innovation for the corporate sector. That's how it works in reality. That's the big yeah. picture story. And I think that across the board, though, taking it out further, I mean, we are in the era and the 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 economy is one of like it, it, it's funny because it's on one hand it's the capital and the ownership is incredibly concentrated and inequality and you know chokeholds on in industry are in some ways unprecedented but then on the other hand everything else is micro targeted they want to know they know everything in my phone that whether it's, you know, well, you know, Michael Brooks likes, uh, you know, dance hall music and he reads uh, The Jacobin and he's friends with these guys and, you know, and, and he also, all right, this brand of, of Pumas. And I buy them because thank you, I do like those brand of Pumas. <laughs> but the point being that I think that the specialization and the hyper focus is also what's being, and also, you know, 
education quality is a factor too, but it's being thrust upon people because you're even telling, you know, younger people, like if you're in college today, you better find your little micro angle yep. or you're going to starve. Yep. So I just, again, I'm always like thinking like we talk about this stuff that's playing out and it's like, well, if we pulled back the context, it's historical, it's economic, it's policy driven. That's the paradox. There's still a lot of power for you to intervene in your own life and community. But I don't, this stuff doesn't just sort of like happen because of bad habits or, you know, trends or they do happen because of trends, but trends always happen in a big macro context, you know. And also, it's algorithmic. Right. And I mean, yeah. I think that's the other thing, too. I mean, part of, you know, we've had conversations about the Mixed Metal Arts Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've had a bunch of conversations with people. And part of what people feel pretty strongly is, is that we need to get the fuck away from Facebook. Because the problem mm -hmm. is, is that Facebook mm -hmm. selects for reactive behavior and rewards that. It right. doesn't select right. for reflective behavior. And so probably we're going to need to set up some PHP boards on the Mixed Mental Arts website so we can have a totally different set of conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's so much of what's going on, too, is, is that, you know, the people who create the super narrow narrative that like, you know, tells you a super simple narrative that can fit in 140 characters about how you guys are the good guys. There's a simple fix to all of this. Yeah. And those guys are all the problem. Those are the guys who have managed to grab the attention. Well, and they always have. Yeah. I mean, that's like our religions, mm -hmm. are why they are successful. In that sense, there is something that appeals not just to a particular social context, but it appeals to how the human mind works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, in the face of the monstrous complexity of life, we crave simplicity. Mm -hmm. And I like simplicity, but there's a difference between simplicity and oversimplifying. Yep. You know, one is making it, making it work. One is creating a fiction and projecting it onto reality because you can deal with the complexity. That becomes the problem. And I think that is how it's one of the viruses of the human mind. You know, that's just how the mind works. We, most people, like there are sometimes stories that, like I was researching a story for History on Fire, right? And I start going down these rabbit holes and it gets so insanely complicated. <laughs> it's an awesome story, right? Yeah. But like in that first half hour, I was just uh, like, what the fuck are we doing here? It's so, I mean, my brain hurts. Can mm -hmm. we go back and simplify it a little bit? Because this is just weird, you know? And I think it happens a lot. I think it's just the nature of the game of uh, how part of the reason why we go for this overly simplified narrative is because life is difficult. Yeah. Um, and I think also the other thing too is, you know, I just always think it's helpful to go back to the evolutionary context, right? Mm -hmm. Go back to within the Dunbar number, go back to that. And within that environment, you know, you had a culture that was well adapted to handling the environment and, you know, people had clear roles and it, that's what our brains are designed to handle. We're now being asked to deal with a level of complexity, a mm -hmm. level of confusion that our minds are just not set up to handle. And we're going to have to evolve a culture that enables us to navigate that system. And I think part of what's interesting is the degree to which, and this is part of why anarcho-capitalism is so fucking stupid, right. uh, is because what happens is that at a certain point, shit gets so bad that you're like, okay, guys, we're going to have a social contract where we're not going to do certain things. And part of what happened was you had all that intertribal warfare, and then you end up with the monopoly on legitimate violence. We're just going to make it so that the state has the ability to kill people and imprison people, 
but then we have to create checks and balances on how they're able to do that. And in the same way, there are things that are being done with speech and conversation that are going to have to be taken off the table. Like you can't, the appeal to authority where you try and pretend like I'm the expert because we can't operate on that. It's going to have to be that you're going to have to have, essentially there is an information space. We tend to it. We take care of it. We understand that none of us can individually conceptualize all of this and that it's unacceptable to uh, try and fuck up or distort that information space for some sort of selfish individual agenda. Let me just jump in here as someone with over a thousand patrons. So I have a certain authority on this. (laughs) I love, I love modeling the behavior because it's so fucking obnoxious. (laughs) It's great to actually perform Perform it. it. And it's like, I hope sometimes when, when it's performed, people can realize how like disgusting and off putting (laughs) and totally not fun it is. Um, I think that that's, and the, well, I, I sort of three quick points. I mean, one thing, though, that I always bang on about that, again, I think is a very specific context. I, I always make the kind of flippant but honest comment that I'm really usually not interested in people's ideas, but I'm interested in who's funding them. Mm-hmm. So I think that, like, you know, this whole libertarian thing, there's a real clear. I don't know if there wasn't a massive amount of money dumped into it by oligarchs like the Koch brothers and so on if this really would have that much traction in culture. Mm-hmm. And I even think that the frame, so the kind of left anarchist tradition, I don't identify with, but I have a lot of sympathy for some of them. I mean, some of the stuff is really quite, it's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. If you could actually conceive and it tracks with some of the things you're saying, right? And right out of the gate, you're already saying, you know, you don't want, um, you understand that business and the private sector is just as coercive if not more coercive than government right Mm -hmm. so even just that kind of basic understanding tracks with our realities i love when i talk to libertarians i always say you know they're going about government this government that i go well who do you find uh you know who's the what's the most tyrannical relationship you have in your life and if they have a job and they're being honest it's their boss it's not the government that's ensuring that they don't have like diarrhea because it's cleaning up water Mm -hmm. because they're in a fantasy life they're not in a real understanding of the conditions of where we are and i think that there's a very specific reason behind that the other two points is i think that you're actually hitting it and i'm just starting to formulate this in my mind the the kind of the sort of dialectic or what i'm trying to sort of convey in my work and you know, I want it to be funny and entertaining and kid a lot of things. But I think this fusion of I want people to be, I want, you know, these clear goals of you know, everybody needs health care. We need global justice delivery. We need to really understand economies and how things actually work and power and how things actually work. And then on the other hand, we need a massive, like, psycho-emotional upgrade. Yeah. And that's where the things, whether it's, you know, meditation ayahuasca community whatever that's the sort of that's actually the yin yang of what i'm interested in In fact that's actually exactly tracks with even just that that image well doesn't that show the disaster that loneliness has created in our society i mean until you solve that you don't solve any of these major problems from people that want to gun 600 people down to or you know any of the crazy things that you go with every day with the homeless folks that 
literally don't know where they are because we don't want to address mental health. Mm -hmm. We certainly don't want to address somebody who's been sort of dropped through the cracks and then they're gone because that's just easy. You can just brush that away. There's a book by Zygmunt Bauman, who's a great Marxist theorist called Wasted Lives. Yeah. He talked about the the you know the formalization of discard of human life in the stage of the economy we're at and you have to account for that well when you go and, to these towers that are full yeah. of like abandoned people yeah. that they're getting their little piece of the dole and then that gets them into their public housing i mean even in even in nashville there were like 18 story towers rows of them that are full of people that have been completely forgotten oh, that's race stuff that's no, that's not. Based. These are lots yeah. of lots and of I'm white sure, people and race in there too. And class stuff for sure. Class stuff and for now sure. in today's world, I mean, they're getting rid of those things as well. And, and I have just no idea what you do with people that point. on the street. Yeah, and but so, see, and there's research on you know the health consequences of loneliness too. Big well, time. Yeah. Specific. Yeah. I mean, actually, we, yeah, we had Dacher Keltner on the show okay. who studies power and all of that, right. and he remembers as a kid, you know, because he grew up in somewhere in Northern California, which I guess was pretty poor at the time. And he remembers that he was playing with some other kid and the kid's like leg broke inexplicably. And it's basically because that extreme experience of powerlessness has physiological consequences where essentially all of your systems break down. You become really brittle and pretty fragile. Um, But, you know, I think that the um, I think the other thing, too, is, is that it's that if you were to deal with all those people that you've discarded and marginalized, you would have to have really emotionally uncomfortable conversations and to me that's there's the a most, lot of that coming yeah and that's the most fucked up thing is is that it's a fear of having hard conversations mm-hmm. that you would rather avoid that conversation and let people be miserable and discarded and like have to like you know realize that their life's work was a piece of shit and all of these sorts of things rather than just like let's actually do the work it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to hear hard things. But ultimately, it's better to just like rip off that Band-Aid, work through that in a few years, and then we can actually get on with our lives. Well, the nuclear family has certainly failed this. I mean, this whole idea of three kids and a mom and a dad, if they stay together, as being how we operate everything is insanity. We have to find this more tribal sense again. And mm-hmm. granted, you can always argue, well, once the tribes are created, they'll fight each other. Sure. But in the short term or in like just down to the human level, if you don't have a team that's going to help you out when things aren't going well, all you're going to have is like flotsam and jetsam of, of people that didn't fit in, didn't, you know, their life didn't plan go out the way they planned. Mm-hmm. And there you are. I mean, we're flowed well, with one it of the here. That, you know, this whole, and I mean, it's in a bigger context, but this attack on immigration, an attack on immigrant communities, and this idea of what they're calling chained migration, which is just migration, and saying that you can't sponsor extended families, yeah. is a direct attack on actually a very positive benefit that people who come here potentially from Yemen or Haiti, that's an incredibly healthy and desirable cultural trait that we should be absorbing and learning. Yep. And it's being, you know, fundamentally attacked. Well, unless and, your name is stands with one leg bare or something, uh, you, you didn't come from, Oh, goddamn you, right. didn't, you didn't come over the archipelago. 
I think it's going to fall to me to sort of play the role of the conservative just so that we, you know, have some of that balance. Yeah. So I think, you know, firstly, when you talk about the psychosocial upgrade, right, to go back to your friend's point about how, you know, emotionally I'm a socialist, but, you know, uh, mostly Republican, politically a socialist. Well, emotion, that psychosocial upgrade is a massive increase in personal responsibility. That's a huge, huge part of it. Because if you look at, I mean, and from the education standpoint, right, mm-hmm. you know, what what has really collapsed in education is that it has all become so contextual and we're all talking sure. so much about, you know, race and gender and socioeconomics and all of that stuff, that personal responsibility is gone. Is that, that really true, though? For, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just, I mean, is that my, because my read is that over 80, like, no, a vast majority of people getting educations are not getting contextual with anything, even the more conservative stuff that people want. They're getting turned out to take tests. Yeah, they need to pass testing the test. Comp- yeah, they're, not, they're not getting trained in anything. So I think even this sort of like conversation of things being over-contextual, you've already taken something that's incredibly small. And it might have problematic, it might have problems, but we're talking about a micro world. I think big picture... Like you said, people aren't reading. People aren't getting a chance to contextualize. And why aren't why are people reading? I mean, there's no question a massive resource question. That's just inescapable. Really, in books are of, books are more available than they've ever been. I'm talking in terms of education. Yeah, in but what? Of, but but what is if you're so, teaching to a test? Okay, so you Martin, do not have time. Martin Luther King, right? Yeah. Here's a here's a historical figure that we can agree on, right? So uh, Martin Luther King. Which you know, part that he was a player? That he was a yeah. he was a I player. I like hookers too. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think he was with hookers. I no, think he, I think he just made his moves. Well, I thought he was a big fan of prostitutes, but if he wasn't, okay, one less good thing. But. <laughs> um, but you know, Martin Luther King. There's a there's a famous story that Martin Luther King was at this conference, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's some NAACP education conference, and this woman is giving a speech, and she's getting giving a speech all about how you know, uh, we need to get children reading, right? And if we can just get them to read, then that opens up the doors to everything else. And Martin Luther King said, yeah, but before we can get them to read, we have to get them to believe. We have to get them to believe in themselves, mm-hmm. right? And what you find mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, what has happened if you, you know, Katie and I worked with uh, both high incomes, you know, wealthy student, rich kids, right? Mm-hmm. We worked with kids in the LA foster care system, and I've worked with kids in Libya, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same pattern, right? There's no sense of ownership over your own brain or any sense of personal responsibility that your actions add up to some sort of educational outcome, mm-hmm. right? And there's just a lot of dissipated responsibility where it's the fault of the teacher or the society or anything like that, as opposed to... That's the self-help section. That's yeah. cool. But, but that's, that's what not, I'm... But that's not policy. That's my main kind no, no, of thing. No, no, no. But see, what I'm yeah. saying is, yeah. I think that's the whole point, right? You've got, yeah. a, you've got a taxonomy in your head, mm-hmm. right? Where you've created this bucket called policy. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other bucket that's called self-help. 
-hmm. But if you want a healthy society, then all aspects have to be addressed. And we have to understand and we have to speak equally, because if you're going to convince both liberals and conservatives, you have to be saying, hey, conservatives, you totally are spot on and are right about this personal responsibility thing. And kids aren't looking up words they don't know. They're not learning from their mistakes. They're not communicating clearly with their teachers. They're uh, not doing the kind of practice that is going to set them up for success. And the reality is that, you know, kids aren't using the resources that they have well. So that's for that side of the aisle. And also, we need to make sure that kids are actually getting the resources that they need. They have the support. They have the food. Because kids, if kids can't are hungry, they're not going to be able to think if but they're living in like, shitty environments. Yeah, what you're yeah. saying, Clinton, it's yeah. funny because it's like, think about the fact that we are at a place where somehow personal responsibility as a specific political side embrace it yeah and the notion that people should have food to eat is another police it's that's the mantra it's like of it's course insane. you need food to eat of course you need to have personal responsibility that just being a semi-decent human being there are a bunch of the notion that in fact is funny to me is the different ideologies will gra- gravitate and start owning one concept yep. Which in itself, the concept is not bad. It's how Mm -hmm. far you take it, what context you use it in, and everything else. But the idea that, yeah, I mean, it's like, it would drive me nuts where, like, stuff that I enjoy, right? MMA, fighting, martial Mm -hmm. The idea that strength, that toughness, then Conan the Barbarian posters, like the one right behind you, that's somehow a more, like, a right-wing thing. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's that's right not, like strength is not a fucking right wing thing. Strength is strength. Right. Strength is human. You know? right. It's like the same way as certain things that are considered left wing. It's like, give me a fucking break. That's just being a decent human being. But we are at a place that rather than acknowledging, hey, you need some of these in the right measure. You need some of these in the right measure. If somebody even uses the word personal responsibility, immediately you're going to have the people who are already our fans. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you, you use the cool keyword. You're one of us. And the ones who are like, oh, fuck you. That means you are not understanding the social context and you are an asshole who just emphasize the individual. And it's like, and the problem is half of the time it's true, right? Mm-hmm. When, you already know that when people use certain words, that's exactly what they mean. But that's what I mean about like the, the monstrous damage done by taking purely ideological position. You know, I was since earlier you mentioned like leftist anarchist, this quote mm-hmm. came to mind, so I went to dig it up. Oh, it's cool. like, good old uh, Mikhail Bakunin. And yeah, quote, that's yeah. That's beautiful, that's right? He says, right there. no theory, no ready-made system, no book that has, a, that has ever been written will save the world. That's right. I cleave to no system. I am a true seeker. That to me is what epistemological anarchism is. It doesn't mean anarchism in the sense I have one specific... Anarchism to me is not even an identity. It's the opposite of an identity. It's been open to everything. Mm-hmm. It's been open to try a bunch of different things. And does it work? It's like to me, like talk economics, for example, right? I don't give a flying fuck about how we... W- I care about what works. So if you show me that a super ultra socialist thing work, at least in this one context, I'm all for it. Yeah. If you show me that a completely different system work in a measure... I don't give a fuck as long as it's working and it's making people happy. And most of the time, the thing that will be a little bit of some things offer a lot more promise than others. It's kind of like back to the, you know, in mixed martial arts. When they started, everybody had their system, right? Mm-hmm. The opposite of what Bakunin is talking about. Everybody cleaved to a system. We have this idea of what combat is and we are going to do these things. 
some system prove themselves to be better than others. Certain schools clearly sucked. You know, you put them in the cage and they suck. They are terrible. You know, if you fail 25 <laughs> times in a row, clearly there's something wrong with the methodology. Most of them, even the quote-unquote successful one, had some success, but they were lacking other things. And so what do you end up with mixed martial arts is that you end up with the Bakunin thing. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, this one works in this contest. We'll take it. We'll use it. That's awesome. There are also clear limits to how far it can go. So we need something else to address that aspect. Okay, we'll add that to the mix. And you create something that you don't embrace because it comes from your school of thought. You embrace it because it fucking works. Let me just and say, that's, and just to say, that's absolutely, I agree with that. To me, it's about pragmatism. Yeah. Like, and we get, we spend so much time hung up on labels or whatever it is. But the point is, is that what I'm, when, when you laid out all of that, right, the reason why I played conservative, yeah. right, that role is because the second that you say psychosocial upgrade with ayahuasca and whatever, I already know how a certain group of conservatives are going to react like, oh, who's this fucking hippie like going off on his, you I'm know, whatever. I'm not a hippie. I'm too, I'm too clean for that shit. <laughs> but, but, no, but the, the trouble, I hear what you're saying. I think the trouble is and where we need so, I think, and of course, like an ultimate stance, that stance of Bakunin, I'm like, yes. I mean, and to me, that's like a form, if you're actually embodying and sort of living and moving from that, that's a form of like enlightenment mm -hmm. almost to even bring in a really, you know, kind of loaded word. But I think the trouble is, so to me, from what when you talk about, okay, personal responsibility and uh, social cohesion and community. Okay, so first of all, right, there's one part of me that's like, okay, that's so obvious and so true that it essentially means nothing. Because if we don't spell out the specifics of it, we're just sort of acknowledging, you know, eat a balanced diet. What the mm -hmm. fuck does that mean? In, a, in today's context, a balanced diet could mean, you're you know, it means absolutely you're, nothing. You're absolutely right. right. But most of the time, right. and that's the funny thing, right. most of the time, people have an objection to that already. It's like, what do you mean we need to include that other idea? No, we don't. Our thing is... The, and well, so that's why I'm different from my guests because I always... I think the way I've been setting up a lot of my conversations is pre and post. So I hear these people who, in doing all this free exchange of ideas, mm -hmm. open bullshit, and really what they're saying is they don't want to acknowledge very real things, racism, sexism, mm -hmm. so on, which are absolutely real, absolutely presences in our lives. And then, um, and then there's people... Uh, you know, I, like who I think have absorbed and understand those realities, and then also like an Adolf Reed, someone who I work uh, admire tremendously, who's a Marxist historian, who has a, a very rigorous critique of identity politics from a post perspective, which is that mm -hmm. he's not saying like that's all made up and we're just individuals. Mm -hmm. He has a sophisticated understanding of how the world works and that why some of the solutions that are provided as political praxis in those areas are a problem for a real successful universal project and it involves retrieving different parts of history and so on. So I guess the, the, the second two points I make is that as soon as we say personal responsibility, the reason I have to interrogate it is, okay, so then one, it's generic in a way. Two, this is what Clinton and Blair said, and this was already a political project, which is the third way, which is that you are mushing up two dominant tendencies. You're not transcending and improving upon them. The world we're in today 
needs a radical, at least on the economic level, it needs a radical left intervention in order to even have the beginnings of the type of balanced playing field you're talking about. Whereas maybe in another context, maybe in a Soviet context in the 70s, oh my God, you need a profound intervention of allowing people to move freely and set up their own kind of independent institutions because the imbalance was so extreme in that direction. And then the third thing was we have to say, what does personal responsibility mean? What does it's all constructed mean? Sure. Because when people use it, as you said before, a lot of people when they say self-responsibility, that's a Trojan horse for fuck you, do nothing, you're screwed. And then there might be other people who when they say it's all constructed is a Trojan horse for um, we're just going to sort of like endlessly play you know word games with each other and 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 look for different ways of sort of like purifying ourselves in terms of you know who can be the most correct and has the most sort of uh you know uh, victim identity chips which happens in certain communities as well so we need to be very precise and mm -hmm. i think the bigger context than why i'm on where i'm on right now is that the world we're in today in order to get to the synthesis you're talking about, we are so radically out of balance mm -hmm. and so radically dysfunctional from, uh, uh, from the perspective of things like economic injustice that you can't even begin to get to a synthesis until we have radically reworked and corrected where we're at. And then we can start to work more of a synthesis. I think the biggest problem with the whole notion is common ground does not exist anymore. There is not, I can't find a place. I mean, you think even with our president, mm -hmm. the only common ground I can find is I do enjoy the occasional orange tic-tac myself. Beyond that, <laughs> there really isn't anything. I think and, I'm doing a tremendous job. Well, so I have that You're trying your best, me. of course. <laughs> well, I don't think I'm trying my best. I think I'm great and everyone says that. <laughs> So I have a lot of common ground with the guy. Narcissism, that's <laughs> the common ground. Yeah, der yeah deranged narcissism. But when we're at a point now Much where, where Alabama and California are simply never going to agree, especially as long as you know Alabama thinks the Earth's 6,000 years old. Do you think that's really true? Because I, I look I don't know where the common ground is. I mean, we you did know, see... I think the, there's the, common ground because I think that we get obsessed with... I, I think that there's a lot of social disagreements, but I think that if you went to 80% of the population... Uh, outside of honestly if we're just looking in terms of real polling data outside of the hardcore republican base which is the trump base yeah you would find people who would say hey maybe i have a different feeling about guns or whatever but yes break up goldman sachs yes i want my kids to have health care in a good school i think there's a tremendous amount of common ground when it comes to broad 80 20 90 10 issues i think that they're totally there but you have so many people that are brainwashed into their positions that will never i mean when you're talking to 30 percent base polls, over 70 percent of americans are open no. to single payer I mean, yeah that's a and, real and number. they want gun control and they want all sorts of great things like that it's sort of purple streak down the center it's an awesome thing but when it comes push comes to shove they go back to their tribes and they vote for but i'm a red guy i'm a blue guy i don't that. know that that's true and i, I also think that. that's the point is it's where we're at right now what are your options yeah like there where's an, where uh, yeah, there's no right, there's no purple right candidates that I can really vote for. I'm searching for purple. Well, and yeah. also, and that, that, <laughs> exactly. that be clear about what purple means because that's another major distortion of the of the political process. Hunter's purple. But <laughs> the thing is, is that when people when in so in if you are watching like Morning Joe or going to like the Third Way or whatever, all these kind of like you know what they essentially mean. I was talking to a a, a, a big you know silicon valley guy recently who secretly sort of covertly shares my politics and is a brilliant guy 
And he said, because you know, he agrees with you. And he's and, and even <laughs> even more so because he personally validates me, which is way oh, more amazing. important than agreeing. So he, uh, yeah, agreement is actually secondary to personal validation because I believe in individual responsibility. So uh, and everybody yeah. should make it their individual responsibility to personally validate you. That's basically what I'm saying. So no, but he, but but that that they're, they're, the elite discourse of what purple means is that you're like a, an oligarch who doesn't want to do anything about poverty, but you're cool with gay people. Mm-hmm. I would say the reverse is actually true. So I recognize that I am probably more so than many parts of the country, much more, you know, socially, whatever the word we're going to use. Right. And I think it's important. I think it's important that transgender people be safe and have rights and so on and so forth. There's no question about that. And I'm aware that that's an argument or a difference. Um, I might be out ahead on those issues. I think most people are actually with me on the economics. I think it's actually, I think what purple would look like if we actually did it from normal America and not the elite, it would look like I'm a sort of, you know, lower middle class, uh, you know, worker somewhere. And I might not have the most, you know, whatever woke, whatever the fuck social views, but I really want you know, my standard of living to improve. And I really don't want all of the resources of this country to be sucked up by banks and, and Silicon Valley. And they have a pretty, they have an awareness of that. So I, I think it's, if purple would look more like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bernie than Michael Bloomberg. And that's the kind of irony of how things are sort of framed in the discourse. And I think on that, what gets funny about it is that whereas we are taking more of a philosophical stance of like how life should be, what makes sense, what works, you know, that kind of stuff in a more let's sit down and figure it out. The political reality is something else entirely mm. because all these words in a political reality don't really mean sh- or rather they mean shit in the sense that they are flags through which you can grab a bunch of followers to follow you and do what you want but at the end of the day it's a game of gangsters trying to figure out how they can conquer more turf right ideas are purely right. an excuse to yep. hook people to do your bidding it's like what was it i think it was like frank zappa was uh Politics is the entertainment division of the military-industrial complex. Yeah, you know, it's like it's a show. It's a kind of like you know, you see, think of somebody who had that image of oh, different. You know, like Obama, two thousand eight, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he was saying a lot of all the right things. Mm-hmm. He was carrying himself in the right way. He had a lot of stuff that. That's why even a lot of people who are not in any way, shape, or form particularly liberal, he got a lot of votes in the middle. He, he got wasn't a particularly liberal. He was a totally centrist candidate. Right. He spoke <clears throat> very similar to the rhetoric that you're articulating of, well, try, of presenting I, that synthesis. I think, but I think that's the thing, is, is that there's what I'm presenting and then there's what you're hearing. And I don't think that the two necessarily map onto each other very well. No, no. I'm hearing, um, What I'm saying is I think what you're actually saying yeah. is on point and really rigorous. Okay. And I think the way it's translated like i think that you are far far more genuine mm-hmm. at, like and actually articulating something and that when those terms are kind of lopped on into a broader political discourse well, they I don't think, mean a thing i think here's but the, that's not to say what you're saying doesn't mean a thing you well but no, I, mean? I understand but yeah. for example you know you said the blair clinton thing right yeah. 
for me, Blair and Clinton were paper tigers, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's like, we're going to make a good show of things. We're going to talk about sure. some things. They mm-hmm. sound good. We're mm-hmm. going to say third way, right. which, you know, is also what Gaddafi said. You know, <laughs> right. like, it sounds great. Did you know that Anthony Giddens actually advised Gaddafi? Oh, a lot of right. people advise Gaddafi. That. When you have a lot of money. He had a ton of money. Like, Anthony Giddens was like Blair's guru, and yeah. he went to advise Gaddafi under, uh, I think it was Monitor Group. That's a really funny yeah. story. Um, but you know, but, but I think the reality is that to have a functioning culture, you have to actually practice things. You can't just preach them and you can't just talk about these things. So if you talk about personal responsibility in an educational context, it's a lot of really simple, really boring actions. Yeah. What does it look like? Like if you don't know a word, you look it up and you figure out what that word means. Mm -hmm. Where did I learn that policy from? Scientology. Scientologists are obsessed with looking up words they don't know. And it's a really simple behavior that if you keep on looking up words you don't know, it translates to you having a much larger vocabulary. I learned that from reading autobiography of Malcolm X. He does the same That's thing? That's what he did in his Hard autobiography. What was it? The that, first word that he checks out in the vocabulary, the, the bear, the some kind of... Be- uh, there's a word. What the hell is that? It's like there's a double eight start with. He has a blast in the autobiography of Michael Max on that, where he's like, he opens the dictionary at page one, and I think the very first word you run into is this name oh, of his weird... Yeah, that Ardvark. one. Ardvark. Exactly. Yeah. And he just exactly. moves from there. Yeah. And I, yep. and I was, uh, I remember I read that, and it was funny because I was homeschooled by like mm-hmm. hippie wolves, and uh, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't learn how to read until much later than you're supposed to, mm-hmm. and it, and it was actually getting to the point where even my parents were like whoa this is a could be a real problem and and then but then this is a this is a sort of typical positive homeschooling story because i kind of went from couldn't read and then i took a test like a year later and i was already at like a college level like Mm -hmm. i just once i got it i accelerated and the actual process for me yeah there was a lot a lot of dictionary looking Mm -hmm. a lot of like looking at a cover of a book that looked interesting and just trying to tackle it even though I couldn't understand half of it and dealing with that fear and embarrassment and ambiguity and just continuing to go. Yeah, and if yeah. you take a simple habit yeah. or behavior like that and you can get it from Malcolm X, you can get it from Scientology, Scientology right? you can get right. it from anywhere. It's just a habit that yeah. works. But the cumulative effect of lots and lots of doing that, I mean, what happens if 350 million Americans did that and they did that for the next 10 years well everybody would be having an entirely different set of conversations we'd all be much more educated much more informed and then that would have consequences for the kind of conversations we'd be having about government and structure and all of that do you think the people who don't quote unquote take personal responsibility which i think for owning for i still again i think we always do have to draw really there is a distinct line between you know you're someone who's really been hit really hard by social forces versus like you're being an asshole, right? right. Like we have to be yep. really clear about that. And that's a taxonomy I feel I'm going to very much stick to. Yep. But that being said, I think that, yeah, there's, we all fail in personal responsibility regularly. And there, there's like, this is another one of those things where it's like, I think you actually said this one time, you were did it talking about like the kind of SJW and right wing blah 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 stuff, which to me in a lot of ways is very boring. But one of the things that you pointed out was that that there's yes, there is this sort of people who've taken concepts of you know justice or whatever and they've turned it into these kind of toxic, stupid, uh, you know, narcissistic online cultures. And then there's this right wing backlash. But the irony is that the the right wing backlash is is like, oh, you know, you guys whine all the time and. 
now because I saw intersectional, I can't get laid. And so ironically, <laughs> it's another. So I do wonder if there's just this much, much broader. I, I don't think, I don't think, I think the only people I regularly see take personal responsibility now in terms of just sort of like ownership of actions and mass popular culture or sports figures. Mm-hmm. I can't think of any other zone mm-hmm. where there isn't a massive amount of push off. Yeah, because people want power without responsibility. Yeah. That's the recurring theme no matter where you go. Well, they yeah. want knowledge without reading as well. Yeah. And in right. the age of Siri, if right. you think any kid's going to go look aardvark up in a dictionary, mm-hmm. yeah, good luck. Right. I mean, we're kind yeah. of in a really, really bad situation right. with that. They're only going to get dumber. Right. And then they discuss their dumbness with each other. And you just sort of create this cesspool of, I don't know, it, is that where the Kardashians come from? I mean, what well, feeds that sort of Armenian. vapidness? They're Armenian. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> you are an eagle rock. Did you just say that the Armenian genocide was, was justified? <laughs> well, I'm, at, I'm working on a book called <laughs> I Take No Personal Responsibility yeah. and the Armenian Genocide Question Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do not go eight blocks that way. No, I no. I, no, I love, I love my Armenian brothers and sisters. I actually, I was, I was in the car the other day uh, and I was going to do the Young Turks while I was out here and you know I was chatting with the guy and he was great he let me like plug my music into the sound system and we're you know listening and whatever and and we actually a, a P. Diddy song came on he's like I drive him once nice guy nice guy and then they, and they said what are you going to do and I said oh I'm, you know, I'm going to go do the Young Turks I'm a talk show guy and he, and he goes he goes we don't like them <laughs> That enemy. <laughs> yeah, the choice of calling a show the Young Turks. Yeah. I've seen better choices. Um, especially in LA. Yeah, right? it's like <laughs> something there. Is. Yeah. Hey, the Young Turks are relocating to Glendale. <laughs> you know? so that was that, that, that Armenian struggle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, but I think to your point, like the cesspool gets boring, right? Like so much of it is that. You know, like there's, there's, you know, there's been a lot of the culture of sort of outrage and being incensed and people have done that for the last 10 to 15 years. And, you know, more and more, I just talk to people and they're like, you know, regardless of whether your outrage is justified or not, it's just fucking dull. Right. Like it's not fun. It's tiring and exhausting. And like, it's not satisfying to like not solve shit. And like spend our time like, oh, what's fucking trending now? What did Trump say? Oh, Kim Kardashian did what? Like, who the fuck cares? Like, let's actually fix some shit. So I think part of it is there are emotional dynamics that make us crave certain things and that, you know, ultimately attention is power and that attention is going to shift away from a lot of that behavior towards what are the things we can do that can practically fix things. I actually have a question on that because I'm... I think one of the issues that I have is that when thinking at a big macro level, when thinking about politics, when thinking about that kind of thing, I do feel that the influence that as an individual you have is so ridiculously small Mm -hmm. that it's almost you're feeling like you're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you don't pay attention, there are issues with not paying attention to these things, you know, and letting the gangsters of the world run the show. But there is an element, it's kind of like even I was noticing, like getting caught in some like bullshit Facebook discussion where you go on forever and this really doesn't add to anybody's day. Nobody walk away any smarter, nobody walk away any happier. Mm -hmm. You just wasted a bunch of fucking time essentially arguing in circles. I feel like 
there's a moment there where you like you when you realize that the interests in terms of keeping the scenario the way it is or shaping it and going in a certain direction is so powerful where all these discussions that people have are so secondary that the instinct that comes in is how about you focus on what's under your nose? Mm -hmm. How about you focus on your house, on the relationships you have with your friends, on the people who are in your neighborhood, on the, on the much smaller, just because, not because that's any, you know, in an ideal world, you could snap your fingers and fix the world. But the reality is that, of course, you have a lot more power of changing things. The smaller, you know, when you go in your room, you probably have a little power on how you want to fucking paint the thing and do something, right? The broader you go, clearly, the less you have power to influence stuff. At the same time, I do see the problems with that approach, that it becomes very insular, very, you know, I'm going to take care of my little happy island, three centimeters around my body, and then everything else, fuck the world. That's not a solution either. But I don't really, I don't know, I'm puzzled as far as what's the right approach, because the individual take care of my own family, friends, community. Uh, clearly, there's more power there, but it's also very limited. The other one is more ambitious and in an ideal world better. And 99.99% .99 of the time, you might as well spend the energy on the smaller level because you're not getting anything done other than feeling better about yourself that you got to say your piece, you know. So I don't know what the proper approaches you know there are especially in these days when i was looking some of this conversation i'm like i should fucking just quit facebook and twitter and all of it it's like i don't want to talk to any of these motherfuckers you know <laughs> i'm just done i don't want to have these interactions i don't want to have book, this man. right i don't want to talk to these anymore, <laughs> these motherfuckers but i mean i i actually think i don't really have an answer to your to the question per se maybe i'll try it but i it's funny for me to say this. This is another paradox of the position I feel I play a lot because I, again, you know, obviously I think that there's things that are really important for people to understand. There's things that I think that I believe in really fundamentally. But I also just, you know, I, I do think there's something, it's a cliche, but it really is like, if you step off of these platforms and go into your day-to-day -day life, like, you know, people are pretty cool. I mean, that's like, like, like most people are like, they're nice, they're, you can have kind of interesting conversations with them and, you know, they come from every part of the planet and they have every type of worldview or not worldview, or they're just like fucking nice people. And it, and you know, look, you can't, there's things we got to deal with and address, but I just think it's very important, especially in all these subcultures we're talking to. It's like, dude, just get out and yeah. go like yeah. have normal interactions yeah. and like you know like and and a lot of things are kind of working and a lot of humans are actually like like another dividing line i feel like between me and and it might sound presumptuous and certainly not like here is one of the reasons i connect with you guys but it's like i, I kind of like most people mm -hmm. you know like i can I'm a, i love to make fun of people to provoke whatever but generally, kind of day in and day out, I think people are pretty cool. Well, it I think that they don't irritate me or whatever. No, but, no. But when no. you step off of all of this shit, and you're just like, oh, people. I mean, it's one of the, just as this could apply to anything. But you know, I I live in where I live in Brooklyn. You know, there's a fair amount of like Muslims around, and it's like. One of the reasons I can't just jibe with all this like Islamophobia stuff. It isn't just all. I mean, yes, I have a critique and blah blah blah, but it's also just like. 
you're really freaked out by this fucking Yemeni the sh- guy or the shawarma that- dude. Like, yeah, have like, you talked to the shawarma yeah, dude? Nice have you been shawarma? to the shawarma restaurant? Yeah, There's exactly. one off the A train in Brooklyn. We hadn't eaten in two days yes. in our travels yeah. and climbed up, and there it was at 11 o'clock open. Maybe the greatest meal I've ever had. And conversely, <laughs> I've spent plenty of time. You know, I mean, it's funny. I grew up in Massachusetts, but rural Massachusetts is plenty of. Wasn't Lowell by any chance, was it? Not Lowell. That's a mill town. But I mean, they know hickey guys who farm and own a ton of guns. And, you know, I spent time in their pickup trucks and hanging out with their kids and. You know, we might disagree on real and and actually, you know, whatever. But like, these are good people. They're cool. I agree with you. You know, and, and people got to remind themselves of that. Well, I they think we're really spoiled. I mean, people in Los Angeles and people in New York, where we have this incredible, uh, it is sort of the melting pot for real because you are on yeah. top of each other. Uh, and I love to say, there's a thousand things wrong with LA. Right. But we are the beacon of hope. I mean, this is the world I want to live in. I want the multiculturalism. I want all these folks working. And you're completely right. 95% of the people you run in on any day, Mexican, Muslim, it doesn't matter. They're going to be decent folks. Wherever. Well, I almost pe- think they get cool. Well, then they're kind of in their tribe Your area. relatives. I mean, yeah. yeah. But maybe it's time we need to have exchange students from, uh, you know, Birmingham to L.A. Yeah. Or, or just so, you know. The minute some some little kid from some shit kicker town finds a hot little Mexican girl, we're gonna change the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I his think, parents won't be happy. Yeah, but then that's that's the whole thing is a lot of people are just freaked out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the world is changing quickly, and this is a perfectly normal yeah. evolutionary response. Like right. you know, a, a cultural evolution works in the same way as genetic evolution. It is slow and it is conservative, right. and mutations are generally bad. So you want to avoid mutations and you want to strip them out wherever you can find them. So it's perfectly understandable that people have reacted this way. But the point is, is that we're going to get over that. Mm. And we're going to get over that through meeting, you know, these experiences are out there happening all the time where it's like, I thought black people were bad, but now I have this black friend and it turns out he's pretty cool. Or I thought homosexuals were this, this, this. But then it turned out sure. all these years my hairdresser was gay and I never realized he was gay. Wow, that and even now... for a homophobic <laughs> That's, that's, that's some bad gay dark. That's some bad gay man. <laughs> or, you know, I didn't trust this kind of person. And then, I mean, like, even like your Armenian Uber driver, right? right? Like, right. I thought I fucking hated the Turks. And then I went and ate Turkish food and I realized it's almost the same as Armenian food. But we got to <laughs> cut away from the food. There's yeah. too many food analogies. Yeah. Well, well but I think that degree, makes yeah. sense because no, it goes true, back yeah. to the basic human yeah. stuff. I think that's yeah. why people dig, uh, well, not anymore because now it sucks, but why people used to dig the walking dead, right? Okay. It's kind of like you're stripping all the bullshit divisions that people have about yeah. stuff that ultimately is immaterial to survival. It's mm-hmm. like food is material to survival. You mm-hmm. know, it's like there's some things that are very basic that everybody can relate to that when you're thrown in that kind of situation, all the other shit doesn't matter. There's yeah. the, it's kind of like the military, you know? It's like you have people who sometimes, would, if they meet each other on the street, they would hate each other's guts, but they are in the trenches together to become best friends. Why? Mm-hmm. Because all that other shit doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your policy. Doesn't ma- none of that shit matters. It matters that, hey, you're covering me when that motherfucker is shooting me. You're taking care of me. I do the same for you. And that there's a human bond in that that's like super pseudo and in, that's why the walking dead you know is like none of them matters you have fucking yeah. zombies to deal with that's a little more important than what you how you feel about gay people you know right. what i mean it's like that shit goes away 
Well, and that's also why after events like World War II, you have this sense of cohesion. Totally. Because everybody's burned their hand on the hot stove of history, and we've remembered what actually yep. matters. Yep. And, you know, I mean, part of what's been talked about with the U.S. military in particular is, is that suddenly you had this with basic training and with these units, you had this bizarre experience where you essentially had the kind of exchange program that you're talking about, where suddenly in your unit there's a... You know, there's a guy from, you know, the South and there's a guy from New Jersey and there's a guy from California. But let's also, well, just two things. One thing, just an interesting, I love this, this note was that I think it was post-World War II, but it moved through, it might have been used in Vietnam too, but there was, a, that was, a, that was a rhetoric of, of uh, civil uh, rights, uh, economic and political democracy and activism at the time was the double V victory mm -hmm. abroad and victory at home for democracy. Because mm -hmm. fundamentally to me, like all of these areas of, oppression to me it's not about identity per se it's about democracy mm -hmm. you can't you do not have democracy when people do not have you know equal fundamental humanity and stake but at the same time that's another we're talking about the military and i mean you know there's a bigger conversation to have about it but that experience was much more prevalent in World War II because everybody was there. The military today is totally class. Of course. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's, the, it's people who are really limited in terms of mobility. There's this like trade-off. Like, okay, if you're willing to go get yourself potentially blown up in a useless war, you'll get some benefits from it. And so we're not... In fact, I talk to people around the military... And there actually, there's this incredible sense of like, oh my God, like you guys don't give a fuck about us. And they don't think of it politically too, because they're no. like, look, you know, there's all sorts of sure. conservatives that are, they have war fantasies and they're willing to sacrifice our bodies for, they have no idea what this means. And maybe people on the left just hate us because we wear, you know, because they don't like the military yeah. and they personalize it to us. And it's like, fuck you. Right. We're really struggling here and we're totally disconnected. I mean, we have this incredibly powerful institution that we put throw a lot of people, some of whom who choose and have options, but there totally is a big class dimension to it. And then we just, you know, out of sight, out of mind, whatever. And, and it's very unhealthy. Well, but that's the it's the core unhealthiness that yeah. we're all talking about from yeah. many, many, many different sides. Yeah. Which is the fact that we don't take care of our people yeah. and we don't treat each other like people and provide help create a supportive global village. Yeah. Where we value all members of the family. I now see exactly what Brian Cullen was talking about of how somehow <laughs> Hunter brings it right back home. <laughs> like pulls all the strands together and put the final poop exclamation yeah. point at the end. It was, I love it because well Brian done. and I do our like simian male bullshit with each other. And he's like, I'm a libertarian. I'm like, libertarian's fucking stupid. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but you like chicks. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then Hunter's like, right, you see how now you both like yeah. Yes. So right. therefore, and then what Richard Nesbitt would say, do you and know, then we see the whole strategy. Do you, do, you, do you guys know uh, Pirate Robot Ninja? Oh my God, no. What no, is it? Pirate <laughs> Robot Ninja. Okay. So this is a thing, I think it's from UCB, Upright Citizens Brigade. It's an improv concept. Yeah. I never studied there, but like this concept is so brilliant, which is that basically to have a successful improv, you need a pirate, somebody who just like swashbuckles in, yeah. causes a bunch of drama, all that sort of stuff. Thank you. You need a robot who needs to focus the narrative, and then you have a ninja who just sort of hangs back, but then slips in the funny one-liners. Oh, that's interesting. And a uh, 10-minute podcast when it was Brian Callen, Chris Stalia, and Will Sasso. Perfect example of that. Brian was the pirate. You know, uh, Will Sasso was the robot. And Chris Stalia was the ninja. 
And it's the same thing with good podcasting is, is that it follows the pirate robot ninja and like, dude, archetypes are everywhere. Yeah. It's insane. Uh, it's crazy. Are you agreeing with Jordan Peterson now? No, I, the whole thing, <laughs> the whole, fuck. I was hoping for one conversation not to involve Jordan Peterson. I haven't been impressed. No. With him, though. You, well, yeah. it's yeah. not as good as your hysterical man speaks calmly. That's no, but I can't, I need to have more Kerman in it. It's just like, <laughs> like we're not individuals anymore. Feminine. Thor thing is crazy. Thor thing is crazy. No, Jordan Peterson, though, is a great example of a guy who's mixing. He's talking about large swaths of political and economic things that he genuinely doesn't know what he's talking about. And mixing, like, some potentially interesting insights on human behavior with a broad... And also extrapolating his narrow circumstances. Like... He's like a guy, like if I went on the subway in New York and I dealt with some guy who was like an asshole and then I like went out and I was like, this means the whole subway system is like this <laughs> and this is the main problem in the world today. Yeah. And so he's dealing with some nuttiness on a college yeah. campus and that's a valid area to sure. talk about and it's valid in his world and he's extrapolated it to these grand global conclusions about you know how governance should work. And that's just yeah. not, like it's just incorrect, right? Like. Why do you think it resonates emotionally so much with so many primarily young men? I think it resonates emotionally. Well, I'll give you the two sides of the coin. So the the negative side that I think is totally real is I think that, you know, in a certain context, you're relatively privileged. You've actually had a relatively easy go of it. And somebody is actually telling you that secretly – you're totally oppressed and the world is totally unfair to you and you're the real victim and here's the secret knowledge, right? And that's the, that is the, literally, like, not, I'm not calling him this, but that is like the fascistic impulse, like that Sartre wrote about, like, mediocre people with an incredible sense of aggrievement and misplaced sense of who they are latching onto ideologies that inflate their self-importance, right? They should go hang out with the evangelicals. So that's, along just fine. It's a similar thing. So, and then I think on the other hand, um, and Angela Nagel, who's a great left you know, Irish academic, she wrote a really good book called Kill All Normies about the rise of the alt-right mm-hmm. on the internet. And she said, and you know, it's just such an obvious point. It's like, look, if you're a young person and your representations of what are quote unquote right or left is you go on some website that says like, you know, before you've finished your first like cup of coffee, you've done like 30 problematic things and having an erection is fundamentally evil and here's a list of Lena Dunham quotes or whatever. And then you go on the other hand and I think, and, and, you, and you hear actually this valorizing self-justifying narrative. It's obvious which one you'd be more drawn to. And then the other thing I'd say about Jordan, I, I have, you know, I have very big problems with him obviously, but I think what's different about him is I think that he's also, there's obviously this enormous need for mentorship and coaching sure. and play and sense of purpose. And, you know, I was lucky. I, I got that. I, I got to study with really powerful meditation teachers. I've, I've worked with, with people who've really, I've done a lot of self work on, mm-hmm. and it's so clear that that is so desperately needed. So, you know, in between all these things that I object to and even other things that I, I just, frankly, I, I, you know, he knows infinitely. I don't know anything about, I mean, I know a bit about young, but he's, infinitely more than I do. I, 
I see videos that are, you know, when I was checking them out, you know, like this is how to do a job interview. Right. This is how to organize your life. And, and people are so obviously in such desperate need of that. One of the things that concerns me where I'm coming from in my politics is that we're always the people who, even in our best versions, we're emphasizing this bigger global context. And most people's day to day is, you know, how do I get laid? Yeah. How do I make money? How do I deal with things? And that needs to be spoken to. And he's doing it. And he's obviously got this certain um, authority, but a certain compassion for his group. So those appeal to me. I mean, I, all three of those things I kind of see yeah. at play. Well, and I think that's sort of, to me, the much larger phenomenon that's going on is, is that a lot of people are lost. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're, we're all lost in some areas. Like, right. there are areas where I feel comfortable and confident, and then there are areas where I'm fucking lost. Like, you know, I, where, where do I put my money that it's safe? Right, like I don't fucking know. Doesn't seem like anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Like the mattress seemed a good idea. To the, <laughs> the house burned down. You know. That was for sure. Yeah, dude, um, we could listen to a Jay Z song. Get it in a really? foot, foot locker. Yeah, <laughs> shoe buy. That's what I do, man. All cash, all money. Um, <laughs> but the and I think in terms of like the you know I'll tie it back up again in terms of the isolation and yeah. in terms of do we engage with people? Right. There's this very interesting problem in education called the two sigma problem. Right. And the two sigma problem is that if you give people individual mentorship, if you give them a personal tutor, they perform two standard deviations better. Like it's Makes an insane jump, wow. right? Wow. Yeah. And it's a problem because the nation state can't afford personal tutors for everyone. But I don't know. See, well, I don't know if we couldn't. We totally could. But that of well, we could. in practice, this is in terms of what Daniele is talking about yeah. that we can personally do is, is that we can just operate the way that a village does yeah. where we're all mentoring right. each other all the time and all just trying to help each other out and share our skills and share our knowledge. Well, that's a book called De-Schooling Society that was written in the 70s by mm -hmm. Ivan Illich, who was in that mm -hmm. kind of anarchist tradition. And that was one of his takeaways was that there's no reason that you can't harness networks of people to co-educate. But, then, but then again, like Jeremy Rifkin wrote about this in the end of work in the 1990s, mm -hmm. and he said, though, he said, look, we can, if people are going to lose jobs through automation, we can say, great, here's universal health care, here's housing, here's all these things, and now turn your skills to re regenerating parks, rebuilding yep. buildings, mentoring people, all of, you know, because we said before, humans are cool, they have a lot to share. Or we could say, you're out of this game, you're useless, we discard you. And, and I, I think, unfortunately, we're making that choice right now. And I think the people who have really done well in the internet space are the ones who are saying, you have value, I see value in mm -hmm. it. Whether it's incredibly destructive people like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, right. or people like Jordan Peterson. Who are slightly less. Even I will acknowledge well, that. I, I, and that. And that and that's my point. I think that you know, I there are there are like I think the you know Jordan got famous off the whole SJW thing, which right. I yeah. thought was stupid. Right. Even when we first had that conversation with him, because right. it's just like you're fixating on what a like you've said, right? right? Yeah. It's what our college kids think. It's like right. okay, if we want to really start scrutinizing what college kids think, we're gonna find a lot of problems. Problems. Right, but the 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 point is that what Jordan has evolved towards, which is just helping people practically navigate their lives with job interviews and cleaning up their apartments, right. and uh, you know even like having difficult conversations. I think that direction we can go further and we can do better, but that's really what's required. Right, right, and I'll always call him out 
and and I would love to debate him on his on his totally you know his <laughs> trash economics and childish view of history, and then maybe in the end he could he could uh, you know coach me on how to achieve my next set of goals. Sounds and that good. would be a nice dialectic. It could trade. Yeah, it could trade. <laughs> All right, we're almost hour and a half. Sweet. Anybody want just final shots or? If you could wave your magic wand and fix one thing, what would be the first thing you'd fix? Mm. I mean, inequality seems like a smart one just because until 10 guys can throw $150 million at any problem that they want swayed, there really isn't a lot of hope. And I don't care about your bucket full of $3 donations. You're not going to be able to beat that. So is that the thing we hit first to just somehow get the pendulum? I Americans, think the pendulum will swing back norm, uh, automatically anyway. I, this, there's a lot of subtleties to this, but big picture, if Americans can understand that labor unions are your friend and they make your life way better. Yeah. And that in the next phase of the economy, there's all these myths that like we're in a new terrain because there's phones and all this stuff. And that's true technologically, but the basic rules of how economic distribution works and how people band together to create and heighten living standards and protect themselves and also potentially create new models of ownership uh, and democratize the economy. Uh, unions are great and a ton of things that you take for granted are absolutely, they're not because magically one day capitalism or something advanced to a certain point. They're because unions struggled and they got them for you. So uh, people, they're, they're your friend. Uh, for me, it would be getting everybody to realize that we all create our own religion and that some of us are yeah. just more honest about it because ultimately all of this comes down to epistemology. How do you know what you know? And, you know, whether it's something like racism. Okay, so you have this set of beliefs about, you know, what melanin tells you about people and then check those beliefs out. Where do they come from? How did they evolve? Do they really make sense? How well do they map onto the data? Same thing with sexism or any of the various economic religions. So it's understanding that you've internalized various myths. Of course, they make sense to you. Probably you believe in them so strongly because it's what your dad or your mom believed. And uh, you sh shut up. You, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know me. You who I am. So yeah, that, that would be my one. It's funny. I think we got a hold on extremism where if you take ISIS and you take the Klan. Now Jordan Peterson. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They all love white pickup trucks, usually Toyotas. <laughs> They're always riding around in the back of those. So that was actually I've read, I've studied that part of the world a lot, and there was always a lot like serious negotiations when Saudi money would come in that they wanted a specific type of Toyota truck. They're everywhere. They like that. They like the Toyotas. It's good for convoys. I did a movie about Sudan. I did a movie about Rwanda, and everywhere you look, and usually with the tailgate missing too. So someone will fall out when you go on your mission. But. Mr. Bellelli, how are you going to fix it? Um, I wish all boobs could forever defeat gravity in this never-ending battle <laughs> wow. and uh, never get cancer. The wow. combination of those two things, I think, would make the world a much, much better place. Crystallized, just like always. <laughs> Fellas, thanks a lot. You guys are thanks awesome. Thanks for having us. There you go. The funky music means that's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. I thought those cats were delightful. That was a nice chat. Four-way chat doesn't happen all the time. We no. have them once in a while. This was fun. 
We didn't step on each other too much either. No. Hey, you were talking about whiskey earlier. Yes. About a week ago, I had a flight of uh, kombucha. That seems like the last thing in the world you'd have. But uh, we went to Ojai because mm-hmm. I had to see with my own eyes the, the location of the Ojai Miracle. Mm-hmm. And there's old observation area where you can get up above the valley and kind of see the whole valley. And when you get up there, a place we've been many times before the fire, that fire went all the way to the edge of the city. Oh, yeah, it was nuts. It was pretty scary. They realized yeah. that they survived. Yeah. It really, it truly a miracle. Could have burned the whole city. If the wind had blown that night, it would have destroyed everything. You know, and nothing could have stopped it. And it was supposed to be another 60, 70 mile an hour night. And for some reason, the winds did not blow. You know what's weird? In Europe, I never, ever hear of stories like that. Like, I, when's the last time that I hear of a story of some random wildfire that burned down a whole town? That just never happens. It's because we have so much extra forested area and we have the terrible habit of, hey, let's go up in the tiny death canyon, unescapable canyon, mm-hmm. and build all our stuff up there. Yeah. That's definitely a problem. I can see how that would be a less than brilliant idea. And we didn't let our forest burn for 100 years. Yeah, that's also a bit of a problem. They yeah. should have just let them burn. Yeah. Anyway, that was a crazy thing. And uh, I thought normally kabooch is a little too vinegary for me, but these were delightful. I went with the blueberry. It was quite excellent. Sweet. Check you out. I don't know why I thought of that. Hey, well, not exactly whiskey, but... Oh, speaking of whiskey, so if you guys want to try, these sweet folks sponsor History on Flavor. History on Flavier, <laughs> yeah. History on Fire. These guys are named Flavier. Uh, the website is flaviar.com forward slash exclusive. Uh, they have the world's largest online club of spirits enthusiasts. They have all sort of like, they send you tasting boxes to try out some of their various offerings in case you want a full-size bottle, all the good stuff. I tried it, really good stuff, I must say. Very appropriate for the drunken Taoist. The drunken Taoist gives the thumbs up and approves. Well, there was an early concept that we'd be drunk every episode, but exactly. why the hell this was, Duncan was there? Because he did drunk history. Right, exactly. This is the good stuff. Oh, let's speaking of saying thank you, let's say a quick thank you to the sweet folks who donated to us. Excellent. Let the pottering begin. This month we got Samuel McNichol, Thomas Robinson, Aaron Wisner, Lisa Robles, Jim D'Amico, Matt Chebre, Michael Gates, Steven Michaud. Me? I have no idea. Sorry, Steve. And by the way, that was not. It was Steven, of I course. That was something. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, like, I already had too much. Gunter, of the, uh, Steven's coming by later. We have to set gold sledding. I had too much of the Flavia offerings. Yes, no. Yeah, Steven Michaud, I'm guessing. Stephen McKee, Jonathan Waterloo, Samuel McNichol, David Rankin, uh, Lisa Robles again, because I guess it has been a while since we have announced the names. So Don't by the time. Yes, great Lisa and Tom Sombera. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are awesome humans yes, for are. doing such a thing. Thank you, folks. Um, what else? Daisy House has a new record. Do they? Yeah. Nice. You can go to Bandcamp slash Daisy House. I think it's just a single with a B-side. But uh, definitely go check it out. I just saw it like maybe a day ago, so I have not given it a gander yet. But I definitely will. Sweet. These guys are great. Yeah, thank you for letting us use the music all this time. That has been very much appreciated. Uh, speaking of all this time, there's a fairly decent chance. I'm hearing that they are changing things at Amazon. I'm not sure whether the whole idea of the Amazon link will last much longer. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Hard to tell. So if you 
are using it. We do have an affiliate program. You can click on the link and it works for us. So uh, while it works, please use the link. It's always appreciated. Um, thank you, of course, to our sweet sponsors. Onnit, Datsusara, Sure Design. Sure Design with the sweetest t-shirts on the planet. And of course, you can check out our own, sure, you know, the Drunken Taoist Sure Design t-shirts that we have on, um, that we sell. Or you can check out the Sure Design t-shirts that they sell that are awesome. And of course, Onnit and Datsusara. And you guys know the drill for those guys. Um, anything else we need to mention? Basketball. What about basketball? We have a basketball person coming. Yes, we are going to have. So probably in about, uh, let's see, this uh, about a month and a half or something, we are going to be having a former NBA guy, former, I think, I can't remember if he just finished playing in Spain, but awesome guy, Bokin Akbar. He has his own uh, podcast, sweet guy. I think I've been a guest. Yeah, I've been a guest on his podcast once. Super sweet guy, really smart, like him a lot. We'll have him as a guest coming up. But just as a reminder, so no episode in two weeks. We will be having an episode about a month from now. So in case uh, you miss us too bad, catch up on all the old episodes that out of 129, you may have missed some goodies. Um, or there's always 3 million hours of History on Fire out there for you guys to check out. I think this is an unprecedented gap. No, I think we've done it before. We did one. I think once before we did something like right. that. And... Um, Oh, that is lecture series, of course. If you miss us too bad, seven hours worth of lectures, check them out. Having said all that, we say thank you for listening. Have an awesome one. Bye. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. Maybe I don't want to hear this. No, you don't. In questo caso, in questo caso, le providenza di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, yeah? Oh, man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people. Do that instead. <laughs> this was great. It's fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. We've been yeah, having a great hour nice. here. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. Dun, dun, dun. I completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're outro. Oh, we're outro. Okay, sorry. So that's... <laughs>
So let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and... Uh, uh, your accent, it just... Whatever that movie is you were trying to tell me about... Can you translate for me, please? I believe the word was Tombstone. Yeah, that one, exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky.